Oh, this is exciting. Starting Revelation. Let's just pray, eh? Father, thank you for this opportunity to dive deep into your truth, into the Word, and to learn more about Jesus, to learn more about you, Father. And Lord, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and we just pray that you'll really open our eyes to really fully understand more about you. That's the whole purpose of this book, is to learn more about you. So open our hearts to learn to love you more, to follow you, and to abide in you, and that we wear much fruit in our relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're just going to jump straight in, read the whole chapter. So open your Bibles. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. So once I've read the chapter, I'll just go have a bit of an introduction, then we'll go through the, hopefully the first six verses, and that'll be it for today. So, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, and who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Verse 
and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Alrighty, so there's chapter one. Who's heard of the Roman Empire? Was the Roman Empire a good place to be for Christians? No. If you're a Christian, you could be thrown to the lions, you could be boiled in oil, you could be covered in wax and used as a human torch, you could have lots of fun things happen to you. What they used to do was the emperors, or the Caesars, like Nero uh, and Domitian is the emperor at the time that John was given this book by Jesus. They were egomaniacs, and they claimed deity and demanded the worship of their subjects. So if you're a Christian, you would be asked to offer incense or some form of worship to the emperor as a sign of like dedication and loyalty to the empire. But that's worship of someone else apart from God, and so you just couldn't do it. And so they would die instead of worshipping another man. They would only worship Jesus. Now, John, they tried to boil him in oil. They tried to boil him alive. But God protected him. And when they couldn't kill him, they banished him to an island called Patmos. This is a terrible place to be. It's just like a little rocky outcrop in the middle of the ocean. It wasn't a paradise. It was just hot. It was dry. And it was a convict place, but it was a prison. So it was a prison that you couldn't escape from. But here, in this seemingly God-forsaken place, God the Father gives Jesus' revelation, which Jesus then gives to John. So is it unusual that John would only receive this revelation in the time of suffering? Is that how it usually works? That we receive revelation in times of suffering? Well, I think it's the way it usually is. For me, the most important things I've learned about God were not in Bible college, in a sermon, or in a Bible commentary. The things I know about the Lord, which I learned in my own Patmoses, my own trials and tribulations, they're the most important things that I've learned about God. That's where I've grown most in my faith. That's where God has revealed more of his character and his love for me to me. And it's the same for us too, or for everybody. I think when you get bad news from the doctor, when a family member dies, when you lose your job, when you have an accident or you're injured, when your children rebel, we all have a choice on our Patmos, if I can use it as an analogy. Are we going to rebel spiritually, launch out in spiritual rebellion, or are we going to wait and see what God is going to say to us? Are we going to complain, or are we going to wait for God to reveal himself? to us in that situation. Now, this happened in the scriptures as well. God usually only reveals things to people when they're going through hard times. And I'm going to just get three examples. There's lots more, but it's just three quick ones. Abraham. Imagine what Abraham was thinking as he's about to put the knife into Isaac. Father, why are you doing this? 
you know, Abraham's talking to God. He's on Mount Moriah and he's ready to plunge the knife through Isaac's chest. And then Abraham stops when the Lord says, Stop, Abraham, I know you love me. See that ram over there? Put it on the altar in place of Isaac. For I am Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. So Abraham learned something about God's provision then. And of course, that was his provision for a saviour, ultimately. So, in this case, a quality of God never known before was revealed to Abraham. When? When he was about to lose his son. And he chose to obey anyway. What about Jacob? I'm sure I'm forgotten. Jacob must have thought as he grabbed a rock for a pillow and laid his head down in love. Certainly God has turned his back on me. After all, I've ripped off my brother all my life. That night, however, after the Lord appeared to him in a vision, Jacob awoke saying, Wow, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And that's Genesis 28.16. So Luz became Bethel, or the house of God. So this place where Jacob was lonely and desperate, and all he had was a rock for his pillow, suddenly became the house of God. When God appeared to Jacob with fresh revelation at that very point, when he felt most alone. Then there's Moses. There's a situation in Exodus 15, verse 23 to 27. The people have been without water for three days and are about to kill me, cried Moses to the Lord. See that tree over there, Moses? The Lord answered, chop it down, throw it into the water, and that which was bitter will become sweet, because I am Jehovah Rapa, the God who heals you. And of course, the greatest healing we have is healing from our sin. So when did this revelation come? when Moses was about to lose his life at the hands of an angry mob. And you can go on and on through the scriptures. God brings us to our little patmoses, our little trials, to bring us a fuller revelation of Jesus. And what happens then is we experience a deeper and more intimate relationship with our Creator and Savior. Now, There's a blessing in reading the book of Revelation. Verse 3 in chapter 1 says, Blessed is he who reads aloud and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now this is the only book of the Bible that promises that anyone who reads or hears it receives a blessing. I got a quote from John Corson. He said, I have found this to be true personally. In my study of the word, revelation always brings a blessing in a unique way to me. I've also seen it to be true congregationally. Do yourself and your people a favor, I tell young pastors. If you want your congregation to be blessed and your own heart to be touched, teach revelation. This end of quote. As you read through this book, always bear in mind that it was not given because believers were trying to figure out the details of end-time events. You know, they're sitting around thinking, oh, what's going to happen? Who's the Antichrist going to be? No, it wasn't like that. What was happening was they were watching their brothers and sisters die as a result of intense and deadly persecution. Where is the Lord? They must have cried. We believe in him. We've given our lives to him. But what's happening? They needed a revelation of Jesus Christ to see that Jesus Christ is still in control, that he is on the throne. And this message of revelation is just that, that God is in control. Jesus is on the throne. And that's the overarching theme of this book. God is in control. 
Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is in control. Things are going according to plan. And now that's hard for us to swallow sometimes. That's hard for us to believe. This is actually perfect. When, you know, the part doesn't turn up and all that kind of stuff, you know. (laughs) Things go wrong. You get a flat tire, whatever. No, this is perfect. It's all going according to plan. So here's a little story to help us understand this. You might know Richard, King Richard, King of England back in the 1300s. In the 1300s, Richard I left England to do battle in the Middle East. While he was gone, his brother, Prince John, took over the reins of power. So evil was John that men like Robin Hood rose up as a result of his corrupt rule. But the day came when finally Richard, the Lionhearted, finished his crusade and worked his way back up into Europe and toward England. When word travelled through the land that Richard was returning, Prince John erected a series of castles and defences to keep his brother from regaining control. But as Richard and his men arrived on the shores of England, they mowed down the lines of defence and took control of the castles as easily as a hot knife goes through butter. And in each village and hamlet on his way back to power, church bells pealed and people shouted, The king is coming, the lion has returned. And this is the message to the book of Revelation. The king is in control, the king is coming, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, he's on his way. That's the main purpose of the book, is to encourage people through suffering, which is why Revelation is such a blessing. The outline. Now, if you probably notice that many pastors and churches avoid teaching through the book of Revelation. A lot of believers are hesitant to read it because they think it's hard to understand, but I don't think so. I'm going to show you why as we go through the outline. This book is the only book in the Bible that comes with its own outline, and it's in verse 19. So if you look in your Bibles at verse 19, and Jesus tells John to, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So section one, it presents him whom John has seen, that is the Lord's person, the glorified Jesus, and that's chapter one. Section two is chapters two and three, and that addresses the things that are, and that is the church, the Lord's people, and the whole church age. And Section 3, which is chapters 4 to 22, detail the things yet to come, the Lord's program of future events. So if you follow this divine outline, the book unfolds actually quite easily. So section 1, the things which you have seen, that's chapter 1, that's the reality of the resurrected Jesus. He's no longer a baby in a manger. He's no longer hanging on the cross. He's no longer lying in the tomb. He's a glorified king. Section 2, the things which are, and Jesus gives seven messages to the seven churches, which include the chronological flow of church history, from the beginning of the early church right until the end of the church age. So basically, it's talking about the characteristics of different churches and our own personal lives, which would be interesting once we get there. And also, it gives us the flow of how the church has been changing over the millennia. Now, section 3 chapters 4 to 22, are the things which will take place after the church age. So the things which will take place after this, or metatelta is the Greek word there, so we'll come back to that. So in chapters 4 and 5, 
The church is raptured and taken to heaven for a seven-year like honeymoon period with the Lord. In chapters 6 through 19, the seven-year tribulation occurs on earth as God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Chapter 19, this is where Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation and establishes his kingdom. And then in chapter 20, you have the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It's a thousand-year period of peace and prosperity. Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem. At the end of this thousand years, Satan is loosed and a final rebellion happens. But Satan is put away permanently in the lake of fire. And then in chapters 21 and 22, you have a new heaven and a new earth are created. And we live there happily ever after with no more sin and no more death. And that's eternity. So, that's the outline. So I've kept the introduction quite brief. So now we're going to jump into verse 1. So Revelation, I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So some Bibles might read the revelation of St. John or something like that, but it's not. Those titles, the verses, the chapters are all man-made, with man's ideas. They're not inspired. This book, Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus, not of John. Now, what does revelation mean? Well, the Greek word is like apocalypse, and it literally means unveiling. So it's the unveiling of something. It's revelation of something. Which God gave him. So the first two verses really show the divine origin of this book. It comes straight from God the Father. This is obviously from God. Now him, in verse 1 there, God gave him, that refers back to Jesus Christ. So the whole book, the revelation of how the Lord is ruling and reigning, of how all things are going according to plan, was given to Jesus by the Father. Now why was it given to Jesus? Well, it says also in verse 1, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So basically, the Father gave revelation to the Son, the Son gave revelation to John, and John gives revelation to us. That's the sequence of the transmission here. John gives revelation to us that we might understand the things that must shortly come to pass. Now, shortly take place? Oh, come on, it's been 2,000 years. How can that be shortly take place? The Greek word there, shortly, is entachiai. And we get our word tachometer. And, you know, as the revs go up, the tachometer, the needle goes up. And so it's talking about something that when it does happen, it will happen quickly. So it doesn't mean it's going to happen soon, but when it does happen, it will happen quickly. And what it's saying is basically, when it comes time, the tachometer is going to be right up in the red line. The signs are going to happen much more quickly. And I've got a little example here to help you understand this. It's like driving from Sydney to Perth. You know, Perth is is our destination. And you're looking for signs. Where's Perth? Where's Perth? Now, if you're in Sydney, when I was driving, I don't remember seeing any signs saying Perth this way. When I was driving through Victoria on the way back, I might have seen maybe one sign, say, pointing to Perth. When I was driving through South Australia, I might see two or three signs for Perth as I drive out of Adelaide. As I started to cross the Nullarbor, there are signs every few hundred kilometres. As I cross the WA border, the signs are more frequent. 
and then I passed through Kalgoorlie and the signs were 50 k's or so. And then as I got really close, they're only 5 or 10 k's apart. Those distance markers, Perth, you know, 45, 40, 35, and it's quicker and quicker and quicker until I reach my destination. And that's the idea here. Things begin slowly, one sign appears. But then, maybe a hundred years pass before another sign appears, maybe a thousand years even. But one day, all of a sudden, the tachometer will start to show the engine revving up and there'll be more signs and more signs, signs upon signs. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing the tachometer start to get close to the red line. Things are really starting to speed up. It's interesting that the study of prophecy is also speeding up or accelerating. And it's really only been since the 1900s that there's been a real strong interest in prophecy, where people are studying it, writing books about it, people talking about it more. And this is especially true since the restoration of Israel as a nation. And I just want to go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verses 4, 8, and 9. And it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal, or encrypt, the book until the time of the end, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed, or encrypted, till the time of the end. Now I've highlighted, until the time of the end. So you know what encryption is. All the information's there, but you just can't understand it. It's all gobbledygook. So now the events that are unfolding now, the technology that is available, is causing us to be able to understand it's like it's being unencrypted for us so it's going to be encrypted or sealed until the time of the end many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase so basically people are going to be seeking out knowledge about prophecy now so the book of daniel the sister book to revelation the book that gives the foundation for revelation is now open it's not encrypted anymore and also, the book of Revelation is getting easier to understand. Why? Why is Revelation now easier to understand than it was, say, 200 years ago? Because more signs have been fulfilled. More prophecies have already come to pass. And especially Israel becoming a nation again. For me, and I think for most prophecy students or Christians who are interested in prophecy, the nation of Israel becoming a nation is like a big red light saying, Jesus is coming back soon, because that happens just before Jesus comes back. That was in 1948. Dr. C.I. Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Study Bible, very famous book, um, he said concerning the book of Revelation back in 1903, the book is so written, the book of Revelation is so written, that as the actual time of these events approach, the current events will unlock the meaning of the book. Interesting, hey? The current events will unlock the meaning of the book. Revelation is written in such a way that its meaning becomes clear with the unfolding of current world events. Now, I was thinking about this. If that were true for Dr. Schofield back in 1903, how much more true should it be for us today? Hal Lindsay says, Yesterday's prophecies, today's headlines. He's a good person to listen to on prophecy. Now, there are some symbols in the book of Revelation that are not explained in the rest of Scripture. Most are, most of the symbols and signs are, but some aren't. And it's the current events and current technology that will help us to understand these signs and symbols. I'm going to come back to why John used signs and symbols in a moment. But what are some of these current events that are watching that give us greater understanding of what's going on? Well, 
we have the convergence of many of the signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, which include deception, natural disasters, earthquakes, floods, famines, diseases, wars, rumors of wars, sin abounding, the church compromising, and the love of many growing cold. Also, more pertinent to Revelation, or more relevant to Revelation, is we're starting to observe the formation or beginnings of three hallmarks, three distinguishing features of the seven-year tribulation period. And they are the one-world financial or economic system, a one-world religion, and a one-world government. And these three things are only possible because of incredibly fast advances in technology. So some might say that a prospect of one-world government is ridiculous, but not so many people are saying that now. People are actually asking for world governance. And governments are becoming more and more unstable. Nations are accumulating unsustainable debt and infighting amongst nations' governments is pulling countries apart, like America is a good example of that. And this combined with an ever-increasing number of crises means that it's only a matter of time before the world system as we know it will collapse. It will cave in. And then a charismatic, intelligent and persuasive but very evil leader will come on the scene. He won't appear evil, he'll appear as a good guy. And he'll have all the solutions that the world craves and the world will give up whatever freedoms they might have left to get the security and the promises that this guy gives them for financial gain and a good quality of life. So, some of the signs are not explained in the rest of the Bible, but most of them are. How do you know what they mean? Well, you need to know your Bible. I've got a good quote from David Guzik. It says, Though it is filled with signs, the book of Revelation is accessible to those who have an understanding of the first 65 books of the Bible and especially an understanding of the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. It contains more than 500 illustrations to the Old Testament, and 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation, that's about 70%, make some reference to the Old Testament. So this is another good reason to be reading your Bible from cover to cover. And the book of Daniel is really important, so if you haven't listened to the series on Daniel, listen to that, and it explains where the seven-year period comes from and how it relates to Israel and other things too. Now, another important aspect of the book of Revelation is that it's an eyewitness account. Especially in verse 2, we see this, where John was a witness of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what Christ told him. And also, he is a witness to the things that he saw. Now, saw, in this case, means, by perception, actually seeing something. So, he actually sees the things that he's talking about now. It's not just words that he's being told to write down. He's seeing things. He's seeing things from the future back then. So, God is revealing the future to him. So this is an eyewitness account of the future. Also in verse 11 it says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, just to give you an understanding of the difficulty of John's task, put yourself in John's shoes. You are witnessing 21st, most likely, 21st century events and 21st century technology and you're to try, <laughs> trying to describe that with first century language. 
you've got TV, you've got radio, you've got internet, you've got missiles, you've got tanks, you've got helicopters, you've got planes. In fact, using normal language, it is impossible. And he's also trying to describe things in heaven. Paul says that's impossible. So he uses pictures. He uses pictures to help us to explain or help us to understand what he's seeing. Now, 46 times, John said that I saw. Again, emphasizing this is an eyewitness account. Seven times, John says, I looked and behold. And that represents seven key points. 31 times, he says, I heard. So the main point here is that John is accurately and systematically recording future events that he saw as revealed to him by Jesus or the angel that Jesus sent. And today, we have the privilege of living in the last days where we're seeing some of the same things, or at least a build-up to some of the same things that John saw back then. And therefore, the descriptions in the book of Revelation and Daniel and that, they start to make sense now. Because, oh, I kind of see what he means. And that's why prophecy is now unlocked or unencrypted. It also says in verse 1, And he sent and signified it by his angel. Now the first part of that word is sign, S-I-G-N. And signified in the Greek means written with signs. So the book of Revelation is literally written with signs. And and that explains why people read the book of Revelation and say it seems to be written in code. So why was it written in code? Now I've got four suggestions. First, uh, for protection. To provide protection for the book and for the author. At the time John wrote this letter, the church was being persecuted by the Roman Empire. It was terrible. Uh, People being killed left, right and centre. The book is written in such a way that it doesn't make any sense to the enemies of the church. But those who knew scripture would find it fairly easy to understand because they had the Old Testament as a reference point. Second, the book of Revelation was written with signs to convey information. Now, language changes with time. If you ever read the old King James Bible, it's difficult to understand. You see the language has changed. So if you use pictures or signs, symbols, the meaning of those things don't change. They're timeless, and they can convey more clearly the thoughts and intents of the writer. Third, the book of Revelation was written with signs in order to arouse emotions. For example, it's one thing to say, there's a world political leader coming. It's another thing to say, the beast is coming. It's one thing to refer to a commercial system. It's something else to call it Babylon the War. It's one thing to say, Christians or believers, and another thing to say, the bride of Christ. It's one thing to talk about authority and something else to talk about the line of the tribe of Judah. So it puts these images in our head. It gives us greater understanding. And finally, as we mentioned before, John was describing 21st century events and technology using 1st century language, and so there simply wasn't the vocabulary to understand. All right, in the last part of verse 1, it says, To his servant John. Now, who is John? Which John is this? Well, it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's John the Apostle. And he's used by God, or he was used by God, to write five books. There's the Gospel of John. And that was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The Epistles of John. And that was written 
so that we might know we have eternal life. And then there's Revelation. So John wrote his gospel that we might believe, his epistles that we might be sure about our eternal life, and the book of Revelation that we might be ready. So to know about eternal life, to be sure of our eternal life, and to be ready to enter into eternal life. All right, verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now what does bore witness mean? You tell someone about it, yeah. Yeah, if you're a witness to something, you're describing it to someone else. Now some people say, oh, I don't seem to be growing in the Lord. But they need to understand that God isn't going to give you something unless you're willing to give it out. And this is where this next verse comes in, Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. It says, And as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And there's a good example of this in Genesis 18, verses 17 and 19. God's visiting Abraham, and he said to his angels, I'm going to tell Abraham what is going to happen in Sodom, because I know he will not only receive it, but also share it with others. And basically, it says in verse 19 there in Genesis 18 that God says that Abraham's faithful to tell his family about the things that I'm sharing with him. So Abraham's going to pass on everything to his family and the people he knows. So Jesus put it this way, Take heed how you hear, for the one who has, more shall be given. And that's Mark 4, 24 and 25. So if you come to Bible study or your morning devotion saying, entertain me, I want to feel good, or I'm interested in prophecy, I'm curious to know what happens, just for myself, I'm just curious, then don't expect to receive much. But if you're hearing, studying, learning, praying and reading for the purpose of embracing what you receive and then sharing it with others, then that's a different story. God will give you continual revelation. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads, and that literally means the reads there is to read out loud. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I like to read things out loud. I mean, I don't all the time in my personal devotions, but praying out loud is also good. And when we read things together out loud, it really builds us up. It keeps us focused and it keeps us engaged. And I find that if I can't focus, then sometimes reading out loud is the only way to (laughs) maintain focus. And then it continues, and keep those things which are written in it. So this means we need to obey. And there's not much point in reading something if you're not going to put it into practice, right? So the coming judgment should both fill us with hope as well as purify us as we see our God coming as the conquering king. Verse 4. John to the seven churches. Why seven churches? Why only seven churches? There's plenty more churches. The Church of Rome, the Church of Antioch, the Church in Jerusalem. Well, a couple of reasons. Seven is a number of completion. And God is using these churches to paint a picture. It says, which are in Asia, in verse 4. Now, Asia does not refer to Korea, Japan, or Vietnam. 
it refers to present-day Turkey. So Asia back then was present-day Turkey. So these seven cities or seven churches, founded seven cities, are in Turkey or were in Turkey. And they were chosen because no other churches could have perfectly painted the picture that God paints. So we'll get to that when we get to chapters 2 and 3. God chose those churches because they're all different and each of those churches represent a certain segment of church history. And they also cover basically any condition of our heart. There's like seven conditions of our heart. Alright, verse 4 still. From him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness. So here we have the... Trinity, yes, the Trinity. So God the Father, represented by him who is and who was and who is to come. And that goes back to Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am, Yahweh or Jehovah. And then the seven spirits refer to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12. And Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He's described as the faithful witness. How do we know he's a faithful witness? Well, if you go back to John 14.9, Philip says, Show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. What did Jesus reply? Don't you know that he who has seen me has already seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the faithful witness of who God is. Jesus is revealing accurately who God is because he is God. All right. Firstborn from the dead. Now, it's true that Jesus is the first person to be resurrected and receive his glorified body. But it means more than that in this context. It also means he is preeminent among those who are or will be resurrected. So the cultist might say, ah, Jesus is the firstborn. It also means he's created. No. For example, Americans refer to Melania Trump as the first lady. Does this mean she's the first lady who ever lived? (laughs) No, of course not. But what it means is she has a high position. The first lady refers to her position. Other examples in the Bible, in Jeremiah 31.9, God calls Ephraim his firstborn. Was Ephraim the firstborn of Jacob's children? No, Reuben was. But although he was a younger brother, Ephraim had greater prominence, greater position. So firstborn in scripture can speak of Richard being first, but it also can speak of preeminence, of position. And verse 5 continued, it says, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So Jesus, when he comes back, is going to rule over everybody. Then it continues, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So to him who loved us. Now, does this mean that God is love, but you know everyone has their limits, and if we do too many wrong things, then he'll give up on us and he'll stop loving us? Is that what it means? Because it's in past tense. To him who loved us. Does it mean he doesn't love us anymore? (laughs) Of course not. Why isn't that true? Why isn't it true that God doesn't love us anymore? He used to, but he doesn't. 
what's one of the truths in the Bible? In Hebrews, it says, God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God's love never changes because God's love can't change because he can't change. It's part of who he is. So why does it say to him who loved us? Well, the second part helps us to understand that. It goes back to a particular time where Jesus demonstrated his love for us. It goes back to the cross. So every believer should be secure in God's love, not based on their present circumstances, which can be quite difficult, but based on the ultimate demonstration of love at the cross. And Paul described this quite well in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the work of Jesus on the cross is God's ultimate proof of his love for you and me. He may give you additional proof, but he can give no greater proof. Does that make sense? God can give you additional proof of his love, but he can't give you any greater proof of his love. There's nothing more he could do. There's no greater sacrifice. So, no wonder many believers are not secure in knowing the love of Jesus toward them. They look to their present circumstances to measure his love. Instead, they need to look back to the cross, settle the issue once for all, and give praise to Jesus, to him who loved us, who demonstrated his love. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. And this is what happened when Jesus loved us at the cross. He washed us. He cleansed us from the deep stain of sin so that we are really clean before him. And that's definitely worth praising Jesus about. If we really understand how sinful and how dirty and wretched we were and how unappealing we are in our sinful state to God, how repulsive we were in our sinful state, then it seems too good to be true that God would love us. But it's true anyway. That's understanding God's grace. And 1 John 1 9, the same author, John, he wrote in 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, it says, in his own blood, we're cleansed in his own blood. If there was any other way to wash us from our sins, to find forgiveness, then he would have done it that way. So to wash us in his own blood, points to the ultimate sacrifice of God the Son. Now, notice the order. It's first loved and then washed. It wasn't that God washed us out of some sense of duty and then loved us because, oh, now you're appealing, now you're lovable. No, God loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us first and then he washed us. He loved us while we were dirty, but then he washed us. Now, here's a funny little story. If you have an old pair of pants and you get them covered in mud and grime and stuff like that, right? You could spend a long time scrubbing those pants to get all the grime and mud off, or you could just buy another pair. What does God do? He loves those pants. He scrubs them. He gets them nice and clean. Now, if you've got lots of money, you can always just throw the pants out and buy some more. But if you really love those pants, if you have an emotional attachment to your pants, then you will scrub your pants, right? So God has an emotional attachment to us. God loves us more than he loves his pants, okay? <laughs> he really wants to be in relationship with us. He could have just obliterated every sinner and started again. 
but he chose not to. So, verse 6, And has made us kings and priests to God his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And has made us kings and priests to God his Father. So, this is a status that Jesus gives to those whom he loved in his work on the cross, who are washed in his own blood. Not only does he just love us, and we're in relationship with him, but he gives us this awesome position of being kings and priests to his God and Father. Adam was never given this authority. He was never a king and priest. He was given dominion, but not as a king. So what does it mean to be a king? Well, we have privilege, status, and authority. As a king, we have privilege, status, and authority. As priests, we are God's special servants. We represent God to man and man to God. That's what a priest does. We represent God to man and man to God. And we offer sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of praise. Anything we do where we return his love is a sacrifice. It's something we give to him. Also, as a priest, we have privileged access into God's presence. And you read about that in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Now, second last phrase there, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So, we should be praising him for two reasons. One, he has glory. Now, it says there, to him be glory and dominion. Now, are we giving Jesus glory and dominion, or are we recognizing that he already has it? Yeah, we just recognize that he already has it. We're acknowledging the fact that he is the king, that he has glory, that he has dominion. So, to recognize something that is glorious. So, let's go to the opposite to try and understand this. If something is shameful, then you don't want to talk about it, right? But if something is glorious, it's the opposite. You want to tell everyone about it. So the practical application of the glory of God is that we want to tell people about it. Don't hide it. I'm a Christian. My God is glorious. I want you to know about my awesome king who loved me and washed me in his blood. And then dominion. What's the practical application of Jesus' dominion? Well, if Jesus really is king, then he needs to be king of me too. He's not just king of the world. He's got to be king of me. If he's the king of the universe, then it doesn't make sense that he's not king over me because I'm part of his creation. So will I surrender to him, allowing him to control my life? And finally, amen. And it just means yes. It's an affirmation that through God, it will be so. Jesus will be praised. These things will happen. That's why we say amen at the end of our prayers. It's not, I hope this happens, but this will happen because if we're praying in the name of Jesus, according to his will and his spirit, his loving attitude, then it will happen. So that's it for today. Six verses, but there's a lot in there. Revelation is a book written with signs and symbols, and we covered why that is. It's because it's timeless. It brings out greater meaning, and it brings understanding for things that couldn't be understood back in those days. And we see that God is our saviour, first and foremost, and uh, we're washed through his blood. So I think that's even more important than all the prophetic details we get into later on, to understand that 
from the perspective of those people who are suffering, it was written to people who are suffering, that, hey, Jesus loves you. He's proven his love for you, so never, ever give up. Don't forget. Father, I thank you, Lord, that when we go through hard times, we can read this verse, or these verses, especially when it says, to him who loved us and washed us in his blood. Lord, your love for us is unconditional, and you washed us in your blood as the greatest demonstration, the greatest evidence of your love for us. Help us never ever to doubt your love. So no matter what we go through, even if it means physically giving our lives up for you, like many people were at the time this was written, Lord, we can be sure and secure in our relationship with you, knowing that we are safe in your hands. And as your word says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that even if we do die, we go straight to heaven to be with you as a believer. So we just pray that you give us this confidence. Lord, give us understanding of the signs and symbols in the weeks to come and help us to understand the condition of the church as it is today, as described in the book of Revelation too, as we get into that too. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.